So good morning, church. How is everyone this morning? Good. We're glad that you're here. My name is Cody King. I'm uh, one of the Connections pastors here. And um, if you're joining us for the first time, we are, um, we're in our series called At the Ready. First um, Peter 3.15, Peter tells the church, he says that we, um, that we should always be prepared to give a reason, give a defense for the reason for the hope that we have. Right? So, so through this series, we've been looking at questions and answering questions for us as a church to always be ready to give that reason, to always be ready to give an answer, to be at the ready, right? to stay ready to keep from having to get ready. But at the same time, for, for, for the question that we're going to talk about this morning, you know, as much as we, we need to be as a church, we need to be at the ready to give an answer for questions. This morning, I want to really focus in and hone in on, on the person asking the question. Because the person asking the question at the same time, as much as we need to be prepared to give a reason, that person needs to be prepared and ready for a response. Right. Week one, we looked, at, um, we looked at the question, you know, is the Bible reliable? Week two, last week, we looked at um, why does God allow evil and suffering in the world? Right. And very, very, very good questions with a very good response. And that if you missed weeks one and two, I encourage you to go online and watch those and get a good biblical answer to those questions. But the question this morning for me here is, is more directed not so much at the church as we need to be ready to give an answer for this question, but for the person that would ask this question. If there's anyone here this morning that this question is something you would ask, at some one point in my life I, might have, I would have asked, all right, that makes sense. I want to know the answer to that question. But if you're watching online, I want you to know the answer to this question because the answer to this question will change your eternity. So what is that question? And that question is, how would a loving God send someone to hell? It's a good question, right? How would a loving God send someone to hell? And the answer to that, like I say, will change our eternity. But to answer that question, I mean, we can't really just answer that question. And I just set this up to say that we can't answer the question that is going to change your, your eternity. But there's some problems with the question that we need to address. All right, so the first problem with this question, how would a loving God send someone to hell? Right, we, we need to look at what is our idea of a loving God. Okay, culturally, a loving God is this, this, this non-confrontational being off in the distance that just tolerates everything we do. Right, because last week we looked at why does God allow evil and suffering in the world? If there's evil and suffering in the world, therefore this God, if there is one, he's just tolerating and letting it happen. Right, and if he's loving... God, you know, he's, he's not in our face. He's not trying to control us and make us do anything. So how does this loving God send someone to hell? But what does Scripture say about God? Remember from week one that, you know, the reliability of Scripture. So Scripture says in 1 John four sixteen that God is love. God is the very definition of love. Jesus is the embodiment of that love, right? And if God is love, therefore he cannot do anything unloving. Right? That would be a contradiction, wouldn't it? So you may say here that, that, that but sending someone to hell would be unloving. Right? It seems so, right? If you're going to send someone to hell, that, you know, to this place that we understand to be hell, right? it's this, this bad place that nobody really wants to go to. Right? But if God would send somebody there, well, that would be an unloving act, wouldn't it? But we have no problem, though, with, say, a judge sending, you know, 
a felon to prison. Now, we've got no problem with a jury convicting a serial rapist and sending them to prison for the rest of their life, right? We would applaud that and say justice was served, right? Because evil men deserve what? Consequences. Right? But it comes down to what we consider evil. You know, but we have no problem with that, with the, with the system sending someone to prison. But that brings us to the next problem with the question. That's the problem with the word send. Right? What does it mean to send something? If I were to send an email, right, how, how do we do that? We sit down at a computer, we type it up, we put a subject on it, and we hit send, and it flies through the air to your inbox, and you get it, and you read it. But what does the email do in the sending? There's nothing. Right? A letter, if we were doing the same thing with a letter or a gift, right? if I were to write a letter, I'm going to put it in an envelope, I'm going to put a stamp on it, I'm going to put it in my mailbox, raise the flag, the mail carrier is going to get it, take it to your mailbox, and then you're going to get it and read the letter. But what is the letter actually doing in the sending? The letter is doing nothing at all. So to say, you know, how does a loving God send someone to hell, if he's sending someone to hell and that someone he's sending, the question implies that the person has done nothing to deserve hell, well then yeah, I would say that would be unloving, wouldn't it? But if that is, in fact, unloving, then you're saying that this God who Scripture says is love, Scripture is then unreliable, and if Scripture is unreliable, we can toss the whole thing out and we can go home. But if Scripture is reliable and Scripture says God is love, and if God is love, he can't do anything unloving, therefore he can't send someone to hell for nothing, and therefore is not a sender in the first place. And that brings us to third problem with the question and the third problem with the question is the problem with the someone in the question because the someone is the subject of the question right because so what's the skeptic really asking if you really want to know this question what are you really asking are you asking how would a loving God send someone to hell are you asking on behalf of the village in Vietnam that's never heard the name of God no who are you really asking the question for Someone is everyone, everyone is anyone, anyone is me. We're, they're asking the question for themselves. How would a loving God send me to hell? Because how do we view yourself? I'm not evil. I'm, I'm, you know, I've never killed anyone. Right? I've, never, I've never committed murder. I'm not going to prison. I'm, I'm a good guy because our perception of ourselves is we're not evil. Right? That's, the, that's the struggle with, with the gospel is how we view ourselves. There's nothing wrong with me, but the problem there is with someone. But if the question is flawed, what we need to do to answer is we need to reframe the question. So instead of how would a loving God send someone to hell, it's better to ask, if God is love, then why do some people go to hell? And that's a question that we can answer. Now, if you turn with me to Luke chapter 16, I'll have it up here for you on the screen. Um, in Luke 16, starting in verse 19, and Jesus is telling this, this story to, uh, to a group of Pharisees. And Pharisees were men of the time that knew the law, knew the Old Testament front and back. They knew everything about it, right? And he's telling them this, this, this parable. And it's interesting in this parable that out of Jesus' 40-some-odd parables, the only, this is the only time that he names a character in one of his stories. And it's the rich man and Lazarus. He gives the name to this character, Lazarus. He starts in verse 19. He says, um, he says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. 
Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So you have Jesus telling them about two different men. Right? You get the rich man who he says is clothed in purple and fine linen. Right? And purple and fine linen, it's just the idea that he was very wealthy. Right? For purple, for clothes to be dyed with purple, it's a dye that was very expensive. And it was the outer garment they would wear. And purple was also the color of royalty because of the expense of the dye to dye the clothes. And then the 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 fine linen was the inner garment, which was against the skin. It was just comfortable. And it's just the idea that this man was very wealthy to have clothes such as this. And then it says, that, and he feasted sumptuously every day. And the idea is there he was happy, right? When we have a feast, you know, that's a, that's a get-together, right? That's a party in our opinion. But every day this man feasted, he was happy. He was merry. He did not want for anything. But then in contrast to this rich man you have, at his gate, his very gate, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. It says he desired to be fed. It's not that he was fed from the scraps from the rich man's table. He desired to be fed. And then moreover, even dogs came and licked his sores. And it's interesting that Jesus names this character this one time in all of his parables. And the name he gives him is Lazarus. And the name means God has helped. And in our view here, we tend to view things through the filter of of this earth and where we are at. Would it seem as if God has helped this poor man laying here covered with sores, desiring to be fed from scraps? The dogs seem to be taking care of more, this man more so than the Lord, right? As the way we may see it. But then what happens in verse 22, Jesus says that the poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. But the poor man died and he says he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. Now he says Abraham's side, right? And the reason I think he says Abraham's side because he's speaking to these Pharisees who these men are going to understand if there's any one man that's going to be in heaven with God, it's going to be Abraham, right? The father of the Jewish nation. Right? He's, you know, his faithfulness was credited to him as righteousness. He's the righteous man. He's going to be in heaven. So he says that, that the angels carried Lazarus. So here you can see God has helped this man, right? And that angels are carrying him to Abraham's side. And then contrasted again, the, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment. So he says that the rich man died and was buried. Lazarus died and was carried. The rich man died and was buried. And it does not say here that he was sent anywhere. It says that he was buried. And then in Hades, and Hades here in the Greek is equated to Sheol in the New Testament or the pit or the grave. It's a death. It is, it is hell. And he's being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Right, so here you have this rich man and he ends up in, in hell and he's in torment and we can begin to start gleaning some, some things about these men. Right, so, the, so this man, you might ask, why did the rich man go to hell? Or why did Lazarus go to heaven? Was it because he was poor that he was granted access to heaven? Was the rich man sent to hell simply because he was rich? Because what else do we have here that, as far as a description of who these men were? Right? Jesus doesn't say any one thing about the religious state of either of these two men. He doesn't even say anything about what this, this rich man did that was this evil. There was no evil act named, anything that he would have done in his life mentioned that 
would send him to hell. So how is it that this man ends up in hell? Well, as this unfolds, we can look and see the character of both men. So he calls out to Father Abraham. He recognizes Abraham. So he knows enough about God as a Jewish man to know and see and recognize that is Abraham up there. Okay? And he sees Lazarus at his side, but who does he who does he talk to here? He says, He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue. So he sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus, but he doesn't even acknowledge Lazarus. Lazarus, think about it. He had this poor man on his gate every day, covered with sores. You don't go to and from your house and not recognize or see the poor man sitting at your gate every single day. Right? So he sees him recognizing, but he doesn't even still doesn't acknowledge Lazarus there. Hey, Lazarus, I'm glad you made it, man. You're looking good. You got your sores cleaned up. What's it like there with Abraham? But instead, he addresses Abraham, and what does he say? He says, Abraham, send Lazarus to me to dip his finger in some water to cool my tongue. Send Lazarus to serve me. It's, it's hot down here. Abraham, I'm parched, right? And we get, an, we get an idea here, too, of what, what held the physical aspect of hell, just the torment of hell and the anguish in this flame, he says, right? His, his mouth is hot. Think about, you know, when you're, when you're dehydrated and you're hot, you get cotton mouth, and you go past cotton mouth, and you're just, you know, everything sticks, right? Now, imagine that for an eternity, that kind of discomfort, and that's where he's at. But he says here, to Lazarus, or to, to Abraham, send Lazarus to help me here. He still has this mindset of send Lazarus to serve me. And then Abraham re replies to him. He says, but, but Abraham said in verse 25, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. Right? Again, what does, he do what does he not say? He doesn't say that you did evil things, but you received your good things in your life. And Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And then he says this, And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The Greek here implies that this is the purpose and not simply the result of the chasm. That the chasm is fixed there. It just brings a lot the finality of where we go when we leave this earth. There's no crossing it. In the rich man's life, he received all his good things, but he did nothing of his abundance to help his fellow man. And just based on decisions of his life and consumed with his health, that was his own condemnation. And now he is here and he is fixed. He cannot leave that. And no one from up here can go down there and vice versa. Abraham says, it's too late. And I'm not going to send Lazarus. And then he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that my, so that, he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. So this is the only time, the first time we see that this rich man has any concern for someone other than himself, but it's simply to his own family. And then he also, it implies to hear that, that, that he, he thinks he hadn't been treated fairly, right? Hey, if, if you would send Lazarus once again, send him to serve me, but send him to my father's house, if, if I just had a little bit in, more information, Abraham, you know, I would have lived my life differently. Isn't that the fallacy of normal man, of earthly man, that we say if we just had a little bit more information, we would have done things differently, right? And notice in all this, too, that Lazarus doesn't say a word. 
He doesn't say, ha ha, look at me, I'm up here, you're down there, I won, you lost, you left me on your doorstep. Lazarus says nothing the entire time. But then Abraham said in 29, he says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, still trying to dictate to Abraham. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, they do not, if, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And it's very interesting to me how Jesus ends with this story. As he says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. So Jesus is saying this to a bunch of Pharisees that know Moses and the prophets for certain. They know what he's talking about. But if they're not convinced by them, they're not going to be convinced if someone rises from the dead. And then interestingly enough, Jesus himself will rise from the dead. They will not believe, but more so than that, he's going to raise another man named Lazarus from the dead. And these very same people are going to end up trying to put him back to death. Because if they don't believe everything that they have at their disposal, they're not going to believe if somebody comes back from the dead. But yet, we think we need more information. So why did this man go to hell? The main thing we see here in this rich man is that he's, he's devo- devoid of the presence of God. He did nothing out of his abundance to share. You know, these same Pharisees likely that Jesus is telling the story to at one point, they asked Jesus, you know, what is the greatest commandment? You know, and Jesus responds uh, in, in Matthew 22, he said, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You catch that? If they don't hear Moses and the prophets or the law and the prophets, they're not going to be convinced if someone is raised from the dead. And he says here, on these two commandments, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. The entirety of the law depends on those two things. So we see here, what did this rich man do with his life? He left a poor man at his gate and did nothing for him. You don't love, you can't love the poor man at your gate and do nothing for him for a lifetime. You can't do that. You can't love God. You can't say I love God and then not love this man at your very doorstep. You can't, those two things can't happen. According to what Jesus just said, the first, love the Lord your God. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love the Lord your God. And if you leave your neighbor just laying there, you don't love him. If you don't love him, you're not loving God. You see how that plays out? All the law and the prophets hang on those two things right there. And he's talking about a physical, you're talking about the poor man here and just the physical source, the physical aspect of his, of his body and what he's in, but he's speaking to a spiritual reality that we are all, we are all poor men. We're all covered with sores. And then Paul says it like this in chapter, uh, to the Romans in chapter 1. He says, um, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So he's saying that people suppress the truth, but they are without excuse. Remember the rich man here, he said, if he would have had more information, he would have lived differently. But here Paul is saying that even creation itself speaks to God's eternal Invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, and if we suppress that truth, we're without excuse. And who would we give an excuse to in the first place? Well, it would be given to God. And for those that suppress the truth, God gave them up to themselves. You know, Paul continues there in Romans 1 and 24. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. In verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. You see, what's playing out here is God really, how can a loving God send someone to hell? Well, he can't. If God is love, why do some people go to hell? Because of sin. Because they've suppressed the truth. And when we suppress the truth and live for ourselves, he gives us up to ourselves. So is God really sending anybody to hell? No, he's giving us over. This rich man, he gave this rich man everything he wanted. He gave him up to all the riches. He had it all, but he lived for nothing else other than himself, and it was his own condemnation. So who does this include here? This includes everyone. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And for the skeptic asking this question, and he's concerned with himself, why would God send me to hell? I'm not a bad guy. But now you're telling me that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but I'm, how am I a sinner? What have I really done that's inherently evil? Right, if you look at um, Romans chapter 5, <clears throat> I don't have it here on the screen, but I'll, I'll read it for you or flip over there. But in verse 12, um, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is now counted where there is no law. And verse 15 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many. What he's saying here is that, remember in the garden, when God created everything good, everything was perfect and everything was right. The only thing not good was for man to be alone, so then he created Eve, and you have the marriage covenant there, and then everything is good and perfect and right throughout creation, and God had one rule for his creation. One thing that he told Adam and Eve not to do, lest they would surely die, and it came to a point where they worshiped themselves more than God, and they wanted to be like God, and they broke the one rule, one choice, they broke the one rule, and then sin and death entered the world. And because we all come from Adam, we share in that inheritance. We share in that sin. Therefore, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what does God do here? So what does God do with this here? It turns out he really is a sender. And that he sent who? Jesus. John 3.16, right? Every Christian in the room has got that one down. I'm confident. Right? But for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life. Right? So how could a loving God send someone to hell? Well, he can't, but what did he send? He sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever, someone, 
everybody, anyone, me, you, would believe in him, would have everlasting life. So who's really sending themselves to hell? Verse 17, Jesus continues, you're right, and we all got 16 down, but we scarcely memorized 17, right? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So he didn't send Jesus to condemn anybody. He sent Jesus to save. So if he sent Jesus to save and not to condemn, so who's doing the condemning? We are. And he continues in verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. We don't even, we don't even have to make the decision to not believe. You're condemned already. Why is that? Because of Adam. The one man, Adam. So just as it was one choice that brought sin and death, it is one choice that will bring life. But who makes that choice? So I'm going to reframe the question one more time. If God is love... Why would he then not allow someone in heaven? Think of it this way. Say you replace all the carpets in your house, right? You get brand new floors, right? And you want to keep your brand new floors clean. So what do you do? You're going you're gonna to put one rule, implement one rule that for anyone to enter your house, they must take their shoes off so that you can keep your new floor clean. That is your one rule, Okay. Now, say someone comes to your house and, and you got people over and you get this one person that comes and they're just adamant, I'm, I'm not going to take my shoes off. What are you going to do? I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to come in my house. Right? But what if they're just adamant? What if you really like this person you want them to come in? Are you, I mean, would you just toss out your rule? All right, come on. Come on in and just, and just throw it out. Let them break your rule. And think of it this way. Say you have a married couple, right? And they're on, they're on your front porch. Right? And the wife, you know, she would acquiesce. Yeah, I'll take my shoes off. I want to come in, right? And then it's, it's the husband. I ain't taking my boots off. Got me messed up. All right? And he's just adamant. I'm not going to take my boots off. What do you do then? If you want your co- the couple to come in and hang out with you, right? Say, so, I mean, would you toss out the rule for the husband, your friend, to come in? But then if you toss out the rule, what happens? Are you going to make his wife, you know, is she going to get to put her shoes back on or well since you want to follow the rule just you keep your shoes off but I want to put my shoes on if he's got his shoes on right you see how conflicted things begin to get when you throw out rules because you want somebody in think about God and us God in heaven perfect holy righteous in every way If he were to allow imperfect, sinful man into his perfect heaven, his perfect heaven would no longer be perfect simply because of the presence of sinful man. And he's not going to throw out his rule. Why? Because originally he created everything to be perfect. We're the one that failed. We're the one that broke it. So if he were to let us into his perfect world, it's no longer perfect. So what does God do? Like the perfect guest or host he goes out on that porch. He doesn't leave. He doesn't leave us out on the porch in our own pride and arrogance, not wanting to take our shoes off. He goes out on the porch with us and he cleans every speck of dirt off of those shoes to where they shine. They glow, they're so clean, so that we can leave our shoes on and come in. He sends Jesus, the perfect embodiment of love, the sinful man to go to a sinner's cross 
and pay the debt that we cannot pay so that we can come into his house clean. So who's doing the sending? Because it's one choice, but it doesn't come on down to God to make the choice. He made the choice and he sent Jesus. C.S. Lewis said this in The Great Divorce, and I'm going to end with this here. Uh, but he said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. He says, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. So to answer the question, how can a loving God send someone to hell? He can't, and he wouldn't. If God is love, why do some people go to hell because of sin? So what does God do to fix that which we made broken? He sent his son to make us clean. But we have to choose him. All that are in hell, choose it. But all that are in heaven, choose Jesus. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for um, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for the truth of your word, the the reliability of your word, Lord, to answer to answer questions for us, Lord, that we just think up in our own weak, finite understanding of how things are and how we think they should be. Lord, and I just thank you for that wisdom that comes from your word, Lord. And I pray for us as a church, Lord, that or as we go about this world, Lord, that, that, that when we get to those places where, where we're asked tough questions, Lord, I pray, Lord, that, that we're prepared. I pray that we are at the ready, Lord, that we're in your word and walking with you in such a way, Lord, that when, when faced with such a question that has eternal implications, Lord, that we would be at the ready. Lord, and I pray for that lost person, for that skeptic, for that skeptical person, Lord, that really wants to know, that gets mad about the idea of a loving God sending them to hell. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you put someone in front of them, Lord, a believer, Lord, that is bold and would stand firm, Lord, and would understand, Lord, to answer that question for them, Lord, that they would hear and not with their minds, Lord, but receive with their heart the truth of the answer to the question, Lord. That their eternity may be changed, Lord, and that only comes through you, Lord, and I thank you for making us clean. despite our dirtiness, Lord. I love you and I thank you. Just continue to go before us. In your name I pray.